couple of things uh, con- contextually here that might be helpful for understanding this passage. And I don't want to go into too many of these details because, Lord willing, we're actually going to look at the book of Philippians next summer together as a church and uh, do a sermon series on that. But Paul, as you, as you probably picked up here, is imprisoned. Uh, there's some speculation that goes into this because there are some events that we know for sure about Paul's life and then some things that we don't really know, and so we have to put some things together at times. Um, Most believe that this was Paul's Roman imprisonment. Paul had on his resume several imprisonments, which is never a good thing. But for Paul, they were all for doing good things. They were all for preaching the gospel. He preached the gospel in a place and at a time where it was unacceptable to do so. And so he found himself uh, on the other side of the law many times. And he's writing this letter to the church at Philippi from prison, from some sort of imprisonment. There's pretty good reason to think that that if this is his Roman imprisonment that in, is in the land of Israel for preaching the gospel by the Jews, but then he eventually ends up in Rome uh, to, to continue his trial there. There's actually, uh, it's a pretty dramatic couple years of Paul's life wherein he almost dies at least once and goes through a lot of different trials and tribulations solely for preaching the gospel. And he ends up in Rome because he appeals to his Roman citizenship. And because of his Roman citizenship, the Jews no longer had the right to try him in Israel, but they sent him off to to Rome to be tried. And, And the book of Acts tells us that when he got to Rome, they put him basically on house arrest, that he rented his own place, he was under guard, and that he was able to receive guests in and out of his house. And he took that opportunity to write letters, at least four of the letters that he wrote that make up the New Testament were written during that imprisonment, and because of the ability for people to come and go, those letters were sent out to the churches so that they could hear the words that he had to say. That's what we're doing now. We're listening to what Paul had to say. So he's imprisoned, but he says something in verse 12 that we need to to pay close attention to. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, his imprisonment, his arrest, his trials, his near-death experiences, all of these things that, that we would perhaps have a hard time seeing any good in, he wants us to know that what has happened to him has actually advanced the gospel. That's because you can't stop the gospel. It's an unstoppable gospel. It's a gospel that will advance It's a gospel that has advanced. It's a gospel that has persevered through hundreds, now thousands of years of opposition. It is the unstoppable gospel. There are a couple of ways that this gospel advances in particular in this portion of scripture here in Philippians 1, 12 through 20. And if you're wanting to follow along on the handout and take a couple of notes today, this is the first thing you'll see on the handout, that the gospel actually advances through difficult situations. The gospel advances through difficult situations imperial guard and to everyone else that my word from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. One of the ways that the gospel has advanced is through Paul's imprisonment because his imprisonment made known to new people the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Who are these people that hear the gospel? He mentions the imperial guard. This is quite significant. In, in the Roman Empire, well, at that time, under Paul's arrest, the emperor Nero, who was a very wicked man, paranoid and evil and um, did a lot of horrible things to a lot of people that didn't deserve it. He was a dictator. Uh, he had the, what was known as the Imperial Guard, which would be, I don't, I, I don't know that, that this is a great uh, parallel, but something akin to the Secret Service. Highly trained military people whose whose primary and and, and most important responsibility, anyhow, was to guard the emperor. That's the imperial guard. These are elite special forces of the Roman Empire. And Paul says because of his imprisonment, the whole imperial guard has heard about the gospel and has heard that Paul is being imprisoned because of the gospel. That's incredible. That's an incredible advance of the gospel that this gospel that started out amongst a few Jewish people over in Israel, which was part of the Roman Empire at the time, but, but not the most important part of the empire at all. It was sort of, you know, an, an afterthought of the Roman Empire, if you will. What started amongst a few Jewish people there has now grown and spread throughout the Roman Empire and it's made it the whole way to Nero's imperial guard. His closest, most trusted soldiers are hearing the gospel because of Paul's imprisonment. That's because the gospel advances through difficult situations. We see this again and again and again. He says, not only the imperial guard, but to everyone else. It's impossible to know how far that extends. But certainly there's a lot of people hearing that Paul's imprisonment is because he is in Christ. What that means, the whole reason Paul's in jail is because as that gospel begins to spread, as the news about Jesus begins to spread throughout, first of all, throughout the Israelites, uh, and through who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and then throughout the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people who are, of course, scattered throughout the Roman Empire, there's a major, major concern among the Jewish leaders that their faith is being taken away from them, and that along with that, their power and their authority and their way of, uh, their, their, it has been hijacked from their perspective and they have to stop it. And so they are bringing people um, before courts to be punished for preaching the gospel. They don't like what is happening through the gospel. They have failed to embrace the fact that God has sent the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, the Messiah, to be their Savior, that he's done that in Jesus Christ, and they've become enemies, he will say, enemies of the cross, enemies of the gospel. So they arrest Paul, and Paul goes on trial, and like I said already, he appeals to his Roman citizenship, and he gets sent off to Rome, and as a result, people are hearing the gospel more and more. What's more, the gospel advances through difficult situations the imperial guard hears and others hear. But then he mentions the brothers, which would be brothers in Christ. Verse 14, most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word 
fearlessly. There's an encouragement that is coming. There's a boldness that is taking root because other Christians, perhaps Christians who are a little bit shy about sharing the faith, Christians who perhaps were a little bit afraid of what might happen to them are seeing Paul's boldness. They're seeing his faith stand the test. They're seeing the result of his testimony. They're seeing not only that he's standing strong, but that people who otherwise were out of reach before this time are hearing the gospel. And as we'll, we might get a chance to look at the very end of Philippians in, in, in chapter 4, 22 later, that, that some of them are believing and becoming Christians. That salvations are happening and this emboldens the other believers. They want to be bold in their faith. They dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. What I find interesting, though, is that he says most of the brothers have gained confidence. There will always be some who seem inoculated or immune to gaining confidence in preaching the gospel. Far too many times I've been timid. Far too many times I've, I've been afraid to share the gospel. You don't want to be, you want to be in the most. You want to be in, among those who are emboldened by the difficulties that you see others face. You want to be among those who gain confidence in, in sharing the gospel of Christ. If by implication this means there were some who shrunk back, there were some who became more timid, oh, they, they panicked, Paul's in jail, I don't want to be in jail. You don't, you don't want to be in that group. We want to be those who are given confidence because we know this gospel can't be stopped. It's the unstoppable gospel. Who's, who's encouraged by Paul's imprisonment? We see that the imperial guard hears the word. We see that the brothers gain confidence. And then, of course, this isn't written there, but us, by implication, because Paul's imprisonment, one of the ways that God worked through Paul's imprisonment is he wrote this letter. If you've been encouraged by the book of Philippians at any point in your Christian walk, or by the book of Ephesians, or by the book of Colossians, or the book of Philemon. These are all letters that Paul wrote during some of the most difficult times of his life. The fruit of that are, is actually several books of the New Testament. The fruit of that is that for the last 2,000 years, believers have been encouraged and strengthened, and people have come to faith because of the work that he did while he was imprisoned. That's incredible. So we can thank Paul's imprisonment for this, which leads me to stop and think, okay, when I'm going through difficult times as a Christian, you know, sometimes we go through difficult times because we do stupid things. Um, and God can work through that. I'm not saying God doesn't work through that. But in this particular passage, what we're seeing here is that Paul is being, he's going through difficult times because he's doing the right thing. And when you and I find ourselves going through difficult times for doing the right thing, it might do us good to stop and maybe take inventory of the good things that are coming as a result of that. What's the most difficult part of your life right now? What's the one thing that if you could change anything in your life, you would change? What's the one thing perhaps you've prayed, God... Let me out of this. 
Maybe today is a good time to stop and take inventory of the good things that have come as a result of that. I know for me, when I was sharing uh, this with the brothers at the preaching workshop this week, one of the more challenging, because uh, uh, it was sort of pertinent to what we were doing there, for me, one of the, one of the more challenging difficulties uh, of my life uh, is the fact that we were sort of thrust into this world of disability when our daughter uh, was born with a brain injury. And I remember specifically the first 18 months of that reality and how difficult it was. And I remember there was a turning point that came about 18 months into her life where for the first 18 months, I I could not see past the problem. I could not see past the pain. I could not see that there was anything good that could come out of that. And I remember sitting down uh, in the office of a man named Jerry Borton. Uh, Jerry's a guy that I haven't had a ton of contact with since this happened, and this was the first time I met him. But his influence and impact on my life was such that it really, really led to a, a change in the way that I saw disability. Jerry was a man who in that time, I believe, was probably about in his 50s and had lived his entire life with cerebral palsy and significant physical disability. And he was probably the first time, in, the first person in those 18 months that I sat face to face with somebody who had embraced disability as an opportunity for the work of God to be done and as an opportunity for the gospel of Jesus to advance. He was for me a living testimony of what Paul said right here. When Paul said, I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel, Jerry Borton, for me, was a living testimony of those words. I saw a man that in spite of great physical challenge was being used by God to advance the gospel. It not only gave me hope, it changed my perspective And then time and time and time again over the last several years since that day, I've seen God confirm that the gospel advances through difficult situations. And the reason this came up this past week at the preaching of my life, through disability. The church that hosted us was a friend of mine that I met because he's raising two boys with disability. One of the pastors that came there was a friend of mine that I met through disability because he himself is a pastor who's living with cerebral palsy. One of the pastors that came to this preaching workshop I met because he's raising a son with disability. And I, I just thought about the, of those 17 men, at least probably half of them, those relationships were built in my life that were now being used to strengthen the church and to advance the gospel because my daughter was born with a disability. It's all because the gospel advances through difficult situations. I don't know what your difficult situation is. I'm sharing mine by way of illustration. Whatever your difficult situation is, I want you to be encouraged by the words of Paul who said, what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. I want you to hear my testimony that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. The gospel advances through difficult situations. Next, the gospel advances through difficult people. 
It wasn't just the situation that he was in that Paul saw was causing to advance the gospel. It was the difficult people that he was facing that were also serving to advance the gospel. Let's look at verse 15. Paul says, To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter, verse 18, only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. So not only is Paul imprisoned merely for preaching the gospel, which in and of itself just bad. It's, it's not good. Not only is he imprisoned for preaching the gospel, but while he's imprisoned, there are actually people, we don't know a lot about these opponents, those who are, are preaching out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking they'll cause him trouble in his imprisonment, but just from the context of what we know about his imprisonment, the whole, the whole trial revolved around the fact that this Jesus was changing the way the Jews uh, lived and worshipped and what they did. And because there was upheaval among the Jewish people, that was causing concern in the Roman Empire. One thing the Roman Empire does not like is upheaval and change and, and those types of things. And so there's, there's this sort of swell of, of trouble that Paul seems to be in the center of. He seems to be the cause of much of it, and there's actually people out there trying to add fuel to that fire by preaching Jesus. I don't know exactly what that looked like, but they're hoping that by proclaiming Jesus that they'll continue to put pressure on the Romans to deal with Paul, to stop this Jesus movement. He says they do this out of selfish ambition, thinking that they will cause trouble in my imprisonment. Paul's response to this is incredible. He's not concerned about how this is going to influence his trial. Instead, he rejoices that whether out of good motives or bad, they're out there sharing the gospel. They're actually doing the one thing that I've committed my life to doing. What does it matter? Only that Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. God is using these difficult people. Perhaps you've met some difficult people. Perhaps you've married difficult people. <laughs> Perhaps you've given birth to difficult people. <laughs> In our attempt to minister for Jesus, we're sure to encounter difficult people. That doesn't make them our enemies. We ourselves are difficult people at times. We ourselves are in need of God's grace and mercy and salvation. But we ought to change our attitude towards the difficult people in our life, if for no other reason, based on the fact that in my own life and in the lives of the people that I desire to reach, this is... This is nothing new. It's something he's done before. It's something he's done many, many times. God regularly uses difficult people to accomplish his will. 
He regularly uses people who are against him to actually do what he desires to do. It's incredible to see, and we see this all throughout Scripture. I think of the example of Joseph uh, all the way back in the beginning of the Bible in in the book of Genesis. Joseph is is born um, into a large family, and he's very much disliked by his brothers. And there are some reasons for that. We see some of those come up in Scripture. He seemed to be arrogant at times. Nevertheless, God had a plan to use Joseph in a significant way. And his brothers actually hated him so much that they thought about killing him at one point. I guess, now I think about it, that's not all that uncommon among young men. I grew up with a brother two years older than me. We thought about killing each other quite a few times. But they actually went as so far as to follow through on this plan, and they had this plan to kill him. And then they decided, hey, why should we kill him? We can probably make some money off of him. And they actually sold him as a slave. And so Joseph, as a young man, goes through this very traumatic experience of nearly being killed by his brothers, being sold as a slave, ripped away from his family, taken from his parents, taken to a different country where he has to live as a slave. And that's not it for this story of Joseph. There are many other things that happen that are not necessarily good things in his life, but yet God uses them to accomplish good things through a series of very dramatic events in Joseph's life. After being sold as a slave and then gaining some favor in Egypt where he went to, and then being again accused of doing something he didn't do and getting thrown into prison and then being forgotten about in prison by those who said they would get him out of prison, he eventually gets to where God had planned for him to end up all along. He becomes second in command in Egypt. Second in command in Egypt. Second only to in what was perhaps the most powerful country in the world. Sold him as a slave. Spent years in prison falsely accused of something he didn't do. Yet we already know this about God. God uses difficult situations to advance the gospel. He uses difficult people to advance the gospel. And so what does he do in the life of Joseph? He puts him as second command in the nation of Egypt at a time when there's going to be a great famine in the world. And he gives him a vision. He gives him wisdom on how to prepare for that famine. And then he uses that famine to actually save Joseph's family. It's an incredible story. But after, he, after all of this takes place and Joseph has, has been basically the catalyst for saving his own family who tried to kill him and sold him as a slave and his brothers come, come crawling back basically and they realize who he is and their, their father passes away in the midst of this and they, they come before Joseph afraid that he's going to kill them. And we learn something very important from Joseph's response to his brothers. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 19, it says, But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Mind the place of God. You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. A couple of things that Joseph says here that relate to what we're talking about in dealing with difficult people. And when I say difficult people, I mean people who, who mean us harm. 
people who oppose us, people who are against us, not just people that irritate us, but people who literally are against what we stand for as Christians. One, he says, am I in the place of God? Clearly what he means here is, am I the one to judge what should happen to you? No. And neither are we. We don't take the place of God in dealing with difficult people. We don't don't become the judge nor the jury. We entrust that to God. But we also do that to us, intending to harm us, that God actually uses that for good. That's what Joseph says. You planned evil against me. He didn't forget. He just dealt with it differently. You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Paul looks at those who oppose him, the difficult people in his life, and he has this same attitude. They may be planning evil against me, but God is using it for good. God is using it that people would actually hear the gospel and that many of them would believe and be saved for eternity. Joseph says, therefore, don't be afraid. I'll take care of you and your children. What a a beautiful depiction of the gospel. He doesn't turn against his enemies. He provides for them. He cares for them. In some strange way, he, he, he actually appreciates what they did to him. Because he sees the end result. He sees that God has been using this for good. Again, like I said, we see this all throughout Scripture that God uses difficult people to accomplish his will. Look what happened to Jesus. Jesus, the only innocent man to ever live, was killed by an evil plan put together by evil men. And God used it to accomplish the greatest good that could ever be done. Had difficult people not opposed Jesus, had difficult people not put Jesus on trial, falsely accused him and falsely killed him, there would be no salvation. So what should be our response to difficult situations? What should be our response to difficult people? It should be to, as Paul did, rejoice. Rejoice knowing that through those very means, God does some of his best work. That's incredible. It's unbelievable to think that some of the worst things that we go through actually be the things that God uses to accomplish the most good, both in our lives and in this goal of spreading the gospel and building his kingdom. Now, when I say rejoice, I don't pretend that we should be always outwardly happy and excited at difficult things. But that deep down inside of us, there should be a peace, a contentment. And yes, even a joy in knowing that God will work good through those things. That's what he does. Then thirdly, it might take me a little bit longer to make this point than the others. So don't get excited just because we get to the last point, okay? The gospel secures our vindication. 
The gospel secures our vindication. God works through difficult situations. God works through difficult people. Most importantly, the gospel is our vindication. This is how Paul concludes this section. He says, I'm going to pick up in the middle of verse 18. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. This is a man on trial. I've never been, I've never been on trial, Lord willing, hopefully never will, other than you know some speeding tickets and stuff like that. Uh, but other than that, I've never been taken before a court and had my character and my conduct judged in a way that happens in a courtroom when you're on trial. And this has been Paul's experience. You can imagine, some of you don't have to imagine, you've been through, you can imagine the, 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 the tendency towards insecurity when you know that, that people are going to be looking closely at you and at your life and at what you've done in order to judge you, and, and you're not sure, Paul's no, they might kill him. They might be happening in the Roman Empire and say, Paul, you are to blame. And they'd be right. And if history um, as it has been passed down to us, not from the scriptures, but from outside of the scriptures, that's actually exactly what happens. They pin it on him and execute him. But we don't know that from Scripture. Scripture doesn't tell us how Paul's life ends, so we'll be careful what we do with that. Nonetheless, this man who has been on trial looks to the gospel. He looks to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And he says, I know in the end I'm vindicated because of the gospel. I know in the end I'll have nothing to be ashamed of. The one who knows you better than anybody else has already judged you. God himself, who is aware of every thought and every deed, has already judged you. He judged you in Jesus Christ. And he said, you're guilty and your sins deserve death. Therefore, I'll kill Jesus in your place, and you will go free. That's the gospel. Human beings will never know you as well as God knows you, will never judge you as strictly as God judges you, and never love you as much as God loves you. That's the complexity of the gospel. The gospel doesn't tell us that we're guiltless. The gospel tells us that our guilt has been paid for. The gospel tells us that we are far more guilty than we believe we are. You couldn't convince me that Jesus deserved to die because of me. The gospel tells us, though, that's how guilty we are, that our sin is far worse than we even realize. The gospel tells us that we are far worse than everybody else around us realizes. Nobody could ever, and nobody could ever 
do more to vindicate you than God himself. Because he loves you more than anybody will ever love you. It's just this, this incredible message of the depth of God's love for us. That he knows our sins so well. And he loves us so effectively that he sent his son to die in our place. So Paul stands in that relationship before God. He's already been tried. He's already been found guilty. He's been found guilty of far worse than what the Romans and the Jews are accusing him of. He's been found guilty of sinning against God himself. And he's already had the experience of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ cleansing him of that sin and freeing him of the guilt and of the shame and of the pain of that sin. And so he says, hey, I'm sitting here imprisoned. I don't know which way this thing's going to go, but I know this. I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. There wasn't anything they could do to Paul that was going to erase what Jesus had already done for him. The gospel secures our vindication. Listen to Paul talk about this in Romans chapter 7. In the end of Romans chapter 7, as Paul is reflecting on his own sinfulness, this is what he says in verse 21. So I discover this law, when I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Paul is saying, I seem to be sinful beyond Repair. I seem to be sinful beyond my own ability to even stop it. I seem to be sinful through and through, even though there's, there's part of me that loves the law of God. There's so much of me that seems to love the law of sin and death. Who will save this wretched? Jesus will save me. The law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. Listen to verse 1 of chapter 8, Romans chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. Jesus secured his vindication. How he would be judged in the end had nothing to do with how the Roman courts were going to decide this case. What mattered to Paul was that Jesus had already secured his vindication. What should matter to us is not how other people judge us. What should matter to us is not how we even judge ourselves because we don't have the ability to vindicate ourselves. Jesus, not me, is my vindication. Jesus, not somebody else, is my vindication. Jesus, not the world that I live in and how they judge me, is my vindication. That's why he says later in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? This is Paul speaking. He's constantly having accusations brought against him. 
He considers them nothing. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Well, if you're Paul, it's like everybody. Everybody is lining up to condemn Paul. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. But even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Paul had this incredible ability to see past what was happening happening to him in his immediate physical reality and to know that at the end of the day, Jesus Christ stands in his place in that courtroom and has already paid the price for his sins. And he now has one who is seated at the right hand of God interceding on his behalf. You can, like Paul probably did, be judged guilty in the court of man and be punished even by death, and yet be vindicated by Jesus who died in your place. As I was thinking about this text, and specifically um, the, the men that I got to share this with this week at the preaching workshop who are uh, all committed to uh, doing the work of ministry by, by sharing the word and sharing the gospel, I was reminded that that workshop I don't want to get into a long story here, but just say some things to help you make sense of why I went here in my mind. Um, I was That workshop was actually uh, the result of what's called the Charles Simeon Trust. The Charles Simeon Trust is a trust, a financial trust, that was established um, because of the life of a man named Charles Simeon who lived a couple hundred years ago in England who was a preacher of the gospel um, and today has continued uh, and is actually serving to advance the gospel in great ways by training men and women uh, to share the gospel and to preach the word well. But Charles Simeon's life is, is worth noting as we look at this passage for a couple of reasons. Um, one, he faced difficult situations. Two, he faced difficult people. Uh, but ultimately, he endured uh, because of his vindication in Christ. Just a, a quick note on, on his difficulties. He was called to preach at a church in England where most of the people didn't want him to preach there. And so they actually, there was, in the church that he preached in, there were gates on the end of the pews. And those gates could be locked. And uh, the key holders to those gates were people in the church. And they just, they, they, they didn't want him as their preacher. It was one of those situations where, you know, much like till, still today in other contexts, where preachers or pastors or ministers are assigned to specific congregations, not necessarily chosen by the people. That was the case for Charles Simeon. He was assigned to a church that didn't want him. And so they actually locked all of those gates to the pews so that people couldn't get in to hear him preach. And so, I mean, that sounds fun, right? Um, so he out of his own money, buys them. His enemies, his opponents, took those chairs and got rid of them. And it was their practice to, to have a service on Sunday morning and, their, and a service on Sunday evening. And they actually went and hired another pastor to come and preach the Sunday evening services. This went on for years. So he met outside for 12 years. He met outside and I whine about having to meet in a place we don't own sometimes. This guy's preaching outside. Um, 
And then uh, that subsided for a while, and, his pe- and the church was full of people who embraced him at some point in his ministry. And then in his 40s, he, he experienced such health problems that he, 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 his voice would get so weak that his preaching was reduced to a whisper at times. And, and this is a time when they didn't have microphones and stuff. Uh, very difficult to do that, very frustrating. And uh, that went on for years. He said there were times when he was so physically weak after preaching that his, he felt like he was closer to death than to life. And it goes on and on. He endured a, a lot of hardship throughout his ministry for over 50 years. And I say all that because there's a couple of quotes that Charles Simming gives us that I think will help us and that we can hold on to. As you think about the difficulties that you face in your life as a Christian, and as you try to be comforted by Paul's words that God actually uses those to advance the gospel, and hopefully uses that to embolden you in your, in your Christian witness, listen to some of the things that Charles Simeon said. In 1831, Charles Simeon was 71 years old. This comes from one of his biographers. He had been the pastor of Trinity Church, Cambridge, England for 49 years. He was asked one afternoon by his friend, Joseph Gurney, how he had surmounted persecution and outlasted all the great prejudice against him in his 49-year ministry. He said to Gurney, My dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I'm, this, is, this is the illustration he uses. When I'm getting through a hedge, a, a, a brush, a bush, when I'm getting through a hedge of eggs, mounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. And so Charles Simeon sees his persecution and his trials in light of what Jesus has done. My brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. Then as he lay dying, uh, just a few years later, October of 1836, a friend sat by his bed. He asked him what he was thinking of just then, and he answered, I don't think now. I am enjoying. You and I, because Jesus has secured our vindication, we may currently experience, as if we're going through a hedge, some pain some discomfort, some pricking of the legs, as Simeon says it. But let us be reminded we will soon be partakers of his victory. There will come a day when we will no longer think in the sense that he means it here, and we will just enjoy Jesus as our vindication. No longer on trial before man, Certainly not on trial before God, because our vindication has been secured by the gospel. Let's pray. Worship team, you can come and prepare to lead us as well. Jesus, I thank you that you didn't keep Paul from difficult situations or from difficult people. Jesus, I thank you that you you haven't kept me from difficult situations or difficult people, though they pale in comparison 
to the difficulties so many others face. And Jesus, I thank you that you don't keep your church and you don't keep this church and you don't keep the people in front of me today from difficult situations and difficult people. Instead, what you do is you've been found guilty, but what is more important, we've been vindicated by the work that you did on the cross in our place. And help us to rejoice that this unstoppable gospel advances not only through the good times and through the good people in our lives, but sometimes even more so through the difficult times and the difficult people. May we take encouragement from that. And may we be bold in the gospel. And may we, not just as individuals, though I certainly pray that for each person here, all of those things, but may we, may we as a church move forward into the end of 2020 and into 2021 with so many uncertainties and, and so much opposition already and so much potential opposition to come and, and perhaps difficulties in front of us, may we be bold in the gospel. And may we view these trials and this life as, as passing through a hedge with our head safely secure because you have overcome all of these things. And God, I pray specifically for those in this room who are perhaps going through the most difficulty right now. Without knowing who they are, I know there are people who, who needed to hear this word today because there's pain and there's difficulty and there's challenges that they're having trouble seeing the good in. God, I pray that you would just rush into them the peace that comes from knowing that Christ is our vindication. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name.